Good afternoon. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County welcoming you to the September 2023 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show broadcast the second Monday of each month on WPKN 89.5 FM, bringing you news and information about the arts and culture across coastal Fairfield County. Well, this is my last show, as I will be leaving the Cultural Alliance at the end of the month. As I take my bow, I want to introduce Erica Wesley, our new executive director as of September 18th. I'm very happy that Erica is joining me in the studio today in this special program where we review some of my favorite moments from the 75 shows since I started doing this in December 2017. So welcome, Erica. Thank you. It's great that you're with us. Do you want to say a little bit about yourself and uh, where you've come from? (laughs) Sure. Well, first, thank you so much for sharing space with me and allowing me into um, this creative muse that you have um, on this awesome show. Uh, Just to let people know a little bit more about me, I am Erica K. Stanley Wesley, Thrilled to be taking the helm of a fantastic organization and certainly big shoes to fill after you uh, transition out of the role. But I'm a writer and creatively, I really have always taken to the form of poetry. I am also a scholar and a cultural organizer. I grew up in the city of Bridgeport and the people here, the culture, restaurants um, have always been a muse for me creatively and a source of urgency for me professionally. Ah, I like that phrase, a source of urgency. That's great. That's a a nice edge. Well, I thought I'd start out with the very first of these interviews in December 2017 with the artist Aja Cowens, who actually had wanted to interview me during the Bridgeport Art Trail in 2017. Uh, The logistics didn't really work out, so we brought the conversation onto the radio. What I wanted to concentrate on here was Aja's move to Bridgeport. Here he was, a very well-established photographer based in New York City, the first black photographer in Hollywood who had worked as an assistant to legendary photographer Gordon Parks, who called him one of the most significant artists of our time. And here he was in the Reeds Art Space building in Bridgeport. Why had he come? Well, it was quite by accident that I came (laughs) to Bridgeport. Um, I lived in New York uh, for, well, 45 years, and I had a loft in lower Manhattan, and um, the rent was getting ready to escalate <laughs> beyond my uh, pocketbook at the time. So a friend of mine said they're looking for artists in Bridgeport to help change the way Bridgeport is perceived. So I said, well, okay, I'll go take a look at the places. And I first came up here. I said, no, nah, it's not going to happen. I'm not moving to Bridgeport. I'm hmm. a New York guy. <laughs> but then I went to the uh, South Beach. And uh, that was it. The scene of the water and uh, the bay and all that uh-huh. just took me away. And so I said, well, get me, I'll get it. I'll take a place. I don't care. The <laughs> ocean's there, the bay. And so I moved here in 2006. <clears throat> and it's worked out. Oh, it's worked you. out fantastic because I go back and forth to New York on the train, uh-huh. right. which is very easy and allows me to keep my businesses going in New York. Mm-hmm. That's terrific. Yep. I love it. <laughs> New York is an interesting place, but I think Bridgeport, in some ways, <coughs> excuse me, is even even more interesting because 
there are a lot of things that can happen here. You know, you have the waterfront. You have the trains coming from New York here. And a lot of commercial uh, things are possible, I think, here in uh, Bridgeport. So that sold me, too, the idea that something was beginning to happen. You know, it wasn't yeah. already set in stone. So that allowed for a lot of creativity. So Adger then went on to elaborate on what he found as the cultural richness here in Bridgeport. Interesting because you have, I think, about 13 or 14 different neighborhoods in the city of Bridgeport, which is just phenomenal. And the uh, the range of, of people and the range of cultures is just fantastic. So I think that's part of one of the reasons that I think that the Bridgeport has the possibility of becoming really a center, and not only for art, but I think for culture and art. And people often talk about ways of bringing people together from these many neighborhoods divided by I-95, among other things. So here's an idea Adja had. I like your idea of um, artists being involved in doing a, a healing parade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you say something more about yes, that? Was that yes. your idea? Yes. Yeah. I was thinking when I first came here because people were saying, well, we don't know who all the artists are. And I thought that it would be wonderful to have one day a year where artists from all the different communities could come together and have an artist parade. They're always having these other kinds of parades. And I thought that with an artist parade, people could create their outfits or whatever they wanted to do. But I thought that that would bring people and communities together through the art. And having a parade be, I think, one of the best ways to do that. That would be great. Well, I haven't, we haven't seen the artist parade yet, but um, you have a great sense of um, what about Bridgeport was bringing um, this great artist from New York uh, to this town. Erica, I wondered if you had any reactions to what Adja had to say, given your experience in Bridgeport. Sure. I think Adger is 100% correct. You know, Bridgeport really is on the cusp of another phase of greatness. I think creatively, economically, and politically, we're seeing windows of opportunity Mm. open all around us. And if we just pause for a second, even walking through downtown, you see there's new construction, there's housing opportunities, and those are signals of a community not only thriving, but stepping into um, a new phase. And so I think that he had all the right senses. I'd love to see that parade, by the way. Um, I think it would be a great way for us to see who some of the new faces are in the community that are creating and incubating some new ideas and culture. Yeah, I think think it's worth pursuing. Well, uh, four years later, our December 2021 show, The Arts, Culture and the Future of Bridgeport, focused again on Bridgeport's rich culture and featured Phil Kuchmer, the developer of Bijou Square and other areas of the city, as well as Steve DiCostanzo, station manager of WPKN. Now, Phil has worked in Bridgeport for over half a century and knows the city inside out. He started in the 70s, an economic low point for Bridgeport, but because urban renewal largely passed the city by, it left many historic, interesting buildings behind, now a treasure trove for developers. One of the iconic buildings Phil worked to save was the Bijou Theatre, the first building in the U.S. dedicated as a movie and vaudeville house in 1909. Here is Phil on renovating the Bijou. 
I'd love you to tell us a little bit more about the Bijou, how that happened, and that 2009-2010, and that seems to be have been like the landmark or the or the the really the turning point. Well, can you tell us how you came to it? Oh, absolutely. The the family that owned that the building that the theater was in. Um, it was a very interesting story, and I, don't, I know we don't want to take a whole lot of time with history, but the family that had owned it had owned it since the 1920s. And their two daughters, who were, at the time we purchased the building in their 70s, were the, were the operators and owners when we bought the building. And I, I think that um, had that building not been owned for such a long period of time by one owner, right. it probably would have hmm. become a retail space or a drugstore with some spaces above it. But fortunately, it didn't. You know, they they had some wonderful years there for decades, and they suffered through a little bit of, of less fortunate years in between. And they had been talking with me for quite a while about, you know, what could we do to the building or how could we change it? And they um, finally, they decided that they just had to sell it. And an offer came along to them actually from a church that wanted to buy the building and turn the building into a church. And fortunately, Mm. (laughs) the uh, zoning department didn't allow them to. And I'm not saying that because I don't like churches. We had, you know, (laughs) downtown, frankly, has a history, many, a long history of many churches being downtown. And and there's still a few places of worship here now. But, that made up my mind that I had to act, and, and I made a proposal to them to purchase the building because we couldn't let a building that is actually documented as being the oldest building in the United States that was built as a vaudeville house and movie house that has never been anything but a movie house and live entertainment space. We couldn't let that that designation um, just go. Right. Plus, it has a beautiful streetscape. I mean, the brickwork is Absolutely. Yeah, astonishing. Is. So we didn't want to lose that. Fortunately, fortunately, we were able to restore that as well as some things like the proscenium that surrounds the present screen and small stage that's there. And um, we had to make it economically feasible and attractive um, from from a perspective of being able to work. So we had to reduce the amount of seating from 550 seats to just a little over 200. But but all of those improvements to the interior part of it um, didn't have to cause us to change anything on the outside. As a matter of fact, when we bought the building, it was painted white over most of the oh decorative gosh. brick that you oh see there. Goodness. Yeah. And no, a lot of people didn't even know what was there. <laughs> but you did. <laughs> So, Erica, I'm sure you know the Bijou. You've probably had many moments in the Bijou. Mm-hmm. Uh, or do you, uh, <laughs> you want to share any moments or just your sense of its role yeah, in downtown absolutely. Bridgeport? You know, it's, I think uh, even in the name Bijou, being a jewel, <laughs> you know, it's something so special about the downtown area. And I love the idea of preserving the history in order to really create space for something new in the future. And Bridgeport is a place with deep, deep history. You know, Mm. we think a lot about Barnum and all the things that he contributed to the community, but history is being written in the current moment. And I love that we have something that points as a lighthouse to the past, but also as a lighthouse to the future. So really excited. Very dynamic. Yeah. I also asked Phil about his understanding of the role that arts and culture has played in city development. 
One thing that many people don't have any knowledge of is the fact that when, when corporations are interested in a community for location, one of the things that's always near the very top of their list is what kind of culture and art exist in those in those cities or in those neighborhoods. Yeah, that's a good point. And mm-hmm. that you know, a lot of people wouldn't think that that's as important to them, but it really is. It, it truly is. And. Bridgeport had a long history of of being able to um, bring people here for that entertainment. Even when the city, you know, the city of Bridgeport's not as old a city as most of the cities in the state. It was actually mm-hmm. incorporated a couple hundred years later than many people think that it actually was. But but it was a hub of activity because of its location, right. and it was it was very important that there was that there was entertainment here and culture. And I think that part of the creativeness that is still existing in the city is from there being generations of people here that were that were creative people, whether it was with industrial products, whether it was with music and art. And there's there's a wealth of that that's just part of the being of some... The creativity absolutely. behind both the, um, the businesses and um, what we think of as arts and culture. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what that's led to is combining the few things that we've already talked about, which is the types of buildings and the uniqueness that we have, mm-hmm. the great location that we have, and the and the talent that already exists here, this it has made the city attractive now, not just to the people that were here, but more people are coming because it's got great space to offer and it's very affordable. Mm. And that's what so many of the of the artists and the people that are in those industries really look for. But they've it's been proven in other areas that sometimes they also get pushed out. So the most important thing that we need to do now is to is to continue to be able to sustain that that good that great portion of the economy here which includes all of those creatives so that we don't in fact um, make it a temporary home for them. Right. This needs to be permanent. And this actually is one of my own personal campaigns is to you are, I mean you are one of the few developers who I think truly understand the role that artists play, that artists should in fact be agents in the development of an area rather than temporary people who move in and um, upgrade the place and then have uh, are forced out, but should be long term uh, partners or agents in a development strategy for an area. That's absolutely true, David. And, you know, we've been fortunate over the years that through different ways, we we help to support the the people that we're trying to, uh, in fact, uh, keep here. And we do that by offering uh, rents many times that we're that we are lower than we would otherwise be able to achieve from other types of tenants. We try to support the artists by having their murals and their work um, around us and in our buildings and and to work with the organizations such as the Cultural Alliance to um, be able to find ways to be um, to be any type of an asset to those to that art and cultural community. That's great, and we're certainly blessed to have you in our in our midst. And I, I guess what I wanted to um, emphasize there is 
Phil's stressing how important it is that we sustain the strong contingent of artists and arts and culture industries that we have in Bridgeport, keeping them here alive and, and kicking. Any comments on that, um, Erica? <laughs> I have many comments, but (laughs) I'll isolate it to say this. Um, I love Phil's commitment. And from a development perspective, we absolutely need folks to understand how that partnership works. Um, But I think in our world as nonprofit leaders, we need many more philanthropic institutions to reinvest in hyper local artistic communities, not just creating them, but sustaining them for the long term. Um, I think 2020 was a really important moment for many reasons. But what we saw were local protests involving street art as well and Mm. protest art. And so I really would love to see more philanthropic dollars supporting organizations that can help redistribute some of those funds um, to artists and everyday people that want to create locally and ensure that their community is thriving. Right. And I think that's beginning, but that's a really, really important point um, to bring philanthropy into the sustainability. Yeah, it's a long game. Arts and culture. Right. Well, um, turning to another great Bridgeport cultural asset, WPKN, from where we broadcast. Uh, PKN is a community radio station, part of the Pacifica Network, and was not long ago called out in an article in the August 2021 New Yorker magazine as, quote, the greatest radio station in the world, unquote. So Steve DiCostanzo was a marketing executive in New York before he joined PKN as general manager in 2013. Here's how he describes first hearing WPKN and the prospect of moving out of New York to be with PKN. Would he be faced with a cultural desert? I had moved up from from New York and I was a listener. And and so Uh I, I was basically introduced to the station by... Uh, a couple of shows that really surprised me. I, I was concerned by moving out of New York if I was, uh-huh. you know, going to be, uh, <laughs> you know, in, you know, wanting for some some cultural uh, types of events and and uh, and assets. And all of a sudden, I heard WPKN, and I just was intrigued. <laughs> I, some of these shows that were they were playing, you know, music from Northern Africa, and there were, you know, there's some blues shows that made it seem like you were actually, you know, sitting in a club in St. Louis listening to some St. Louis blues. and So needless to say, Steve felt quite comfortable in Bridgeport. Um, with his marketing background, though, Steve was determined to make the station more visible and relevant to the community. How do we make it more visible, more relevant? And one of the things that I tried to do was immediately pivot and do more in the way of community engagement uh, with... Uh, different community events, like the Music Mash Record Fair uh, that we put on in Bridgeport, and we also did one in New Haven. Uh, we also wanted, uh, you know, starting the um, Music on Film series at the Bijou was right. another right. element of, of better engagement and more visibility. Uh, we've created environmental film series as well. And also, wh- one of the things that we tried to do, you know, which, uh, you know, when I think back 10 years ago, we... We were not necessarily that tight or engaged with a lot of the cultural organizations in terms of doing like media partnerships. Right. You, you were more of an independent. Uh, yeah. We um, kind of, you know, we, we had our own kind of uh, thing going <laughs> musically, but we really, I think strategically, we wanted to reach out and, and, and either have media partnerships or, and or uh, underwriting 
relationships with some organizations like the Ridgefield Playhouse or the Quick Center for the Arts, College Street Music Hall, FTC, Side Door Jazz, so large and small cultural organizations. And um, so that's, uh, I mean, that's changed. You know, I think fundamentally that's, for us, that's something that I've tried to to consciously do more of. And um, I com- completely agree with Steve that that's one of the characteristics now of PKN, its relationships with local cultural organizations. And we at the Cultural Alliance are particularly grateful for the commitment that they have to the work that we are doing. And then asked about his connection to Bridgeport today, Steve replied that, you know, PKN has the responsibility for quite a large broadcast area, um, but they still feel they have their roots in Bridgeport and its culture. In our case, what's uh, interesting and challenging is that we have many communities that we serve because mm-hmm. uh, going back to 1963, we happen to have an, a really remarkable uh, transmitter site. And of course, then with streaming, you can go everywhere. But with the transmitter site, you know, uh, we cover almost all of Fairfield County, all of New Haven County, Litchfield County, into Suffolk County. Lots of lots of uh, of geography that we you know have to be responsible for, uh-huh. but but we are based in Bridgeport, and and I think that uh, you know we feel like we're a part of Bridgeport. The this idea that well you know Phil was talking about kind of the the development of of Bridgeport sixties seventies. It's always been of late, a little bit of an, uh, kind of a classic underdog story. And WP can has been that way as well. Right. Uh, this, this, uh, this sense of, uh, uh, of, you know, the challenge of being a free form community radio station. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's not just one genre that, uh, might be easier if we were just one genre, but it is right. that idea that we have a very expansive palette of, of music and, and programming. But in terms of, being in Bridgeport, uh, I think the place is important because th- there's, I mean, we're, we all know around this table that there is just a, a, a palpable sense of, of this like swelling of artistic energy in, in Bridgeport. Uh, I was looking at all the, from the Bridgeport art trail, the, the dedicated large spaces that are given over to creatives, yeah. you know, in, in this city. And it's just amazing from Metro Studios, brand new American Fabrics, you know, Knowlton, Reed's Art Space, the Arcade, the Nest. I think it's unique, it's, unique it's in the amazing. state yeah. to have, you know, as many spaces like that. Yeah. So, I mean, that I think definitely informs us as well. And, and you know, I think, I think we, if we were located somewhere else, we, we, would, we would maybe sound a little different, you know? <laughs> right. yeah. That's great. So as we close out this segment on Bridgeport, Erica, any any more comments you might have? Well, one, I think um, I like the bookends in terms of the selections of voices that you're choosing, because to add your original point about new beginnings and Steve's point about being very unique in the uh, the level of creative and artistic spaces, that's part of what's helping us turn the corner. I think it's really uh, yeah, rendering yeah. space to people to create mm-hmm. and to think and to do it out loud and to do it in a very public way. So I'm excited to, you know, just be here with my family and to be 
growing with this community because I really believe in the next five or 10 years, we're going to see something extraordinary emerge out of all of this um, artistically dedicated space. Right. And uh, we, of course, will do everything we can to support um, that energy and uh, that construction. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our September 2023 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. On the eve of my departure from the Cultural Alliance and this show, we take a listen to a few of my most memorable moments from the 75 programs I've hosted since December 2017. With me in the studio to comment on some of these clips is Erica Wesley, our new executive director as of September the 18th. Now, one of the many what we call peer networks that the Cultural Alliance runs is the Fairfield County Preservation Network. Professionals and amateurs committed to the preservation of the historic fabric of our region. On Earth Day 2018... Our program, Creating a Sustainable Future, explored how the arts and culture community could be more proactive in looking after the planet. We heard from artist Daniel Lanzalotta recycling plastic trash found on beaches into his artwork, Annalise Paik, director of Sustain, a business encouraging recycling, and Wes Haynes, then with the Connecticut Trust for Historic Preservation, now renamed Preservation Connecticut. Here's Wes talking about how Preservation Connecticut was essentially about recycling and how the old template of turning old buildings into museums had now really been discarded in favor of a new template of figuring out how to sustainably recycle them. Well, the uh, Connecticut Trust uh, is all about recycling the built environment, Uh, not just the historic built environment, but uh, everything that's pretty much existing out there. We, uh, we are a statewide nonprofit uh, mm-hmm. organization. We're a membership organization, too. We've uh, been around for about 43 years, and we're a product of the, uh, the uh, 1966 National Historic Preservation Act, which uh, pretty much established the template for historic preservation activities in the United States. And by that, I mean the old template was that groups would buy a historic building and keep it as a museum for a long time. Uh, by 1960s, that was pretty much not uh, not the, the way to go with things. Every everything that was worth saving wasn't uh, couldn't be a museum. So we really interact with mostly people that uh, are not museums, mostly private homeowners, private uh, businesses that are located in historic buildings. Uh, we work with developers. We work with nonprofits that uh, that are in uh, uh, historic buildings, and we provide a lot of services uh, for those without actually owning the buildings. So I love this next section in which Wes uh, continues this idea comparing old buildings, in this case, to orange juice containers that you want to recycle. Uh, The 1966 uh, Preservation Act recognized that there's an added cost to historic preservation in the present, but there's Mm. also great future value. And that's sort of my definition of sustainability. Um, If you can get these buildings up and running and occupied with new uses, uh, you've created a sustainable uh, path forward for the future. So it really is about regeneration, giving a new life to old buildings. Regeneration and recycling. I mean, you know, these these buildings are 
Uh, think if you think of like your orange juice container and you want to recycle it. Uh, these uh, buildings are really uh, containers for human activities and all the mm-hmm. stuff we put in them. Mm-hmm. They're the largest things you can recycle. Um, and <laughs> keeping them in, in place is uh, the easiest way to go. There's right. just uh, It takes an enormous amount of material out of the waste stream. Um, it keeps uh, the buildings um, in, in repair, and it, uh, it saves energy. That's great. Now, two such buildings were successfully recycled in 2021. You know them today as the Norwalk Art Space and in Bridgeport Metro Art Studios. Both won 2022 Preservation Connecticut Awards of Merit for the excellence of their renovation, and we featured them in a program in May this year. Robin Panovka was the husband of Alexandra Corey, who had the vision for the Norwalk Art Space, but unfortunately, who died from cancer before it was finished. Joining Robin on the program were Jane Davila from Metro Art Studios and Chris Wiegren, Deputy Director of Preservation Connecticut. Here's how he responded when I asked him if he could define preservation. Can we tackle this word preservation? I mean, uh, many people... it might suggest like pickling jars and keeping things as the way that they are, but that's not what preservation is really about, correct? Well, in a way, I mean, the, the point of a pickle is not to have <laughs> vegetables sitting on a shelf. It's right. to have vegetables that are available for you to eat. And the point oh, actually, that's a very, very good point. Yes, <laughs> is, is to have buildings and neighborhoods and, and to maintain them, keep them from rotting, and so that we can use them. Um, because we think they're valuable, perhaps, for their associations, for their design and architecture, or simply for their usefulness. And that, that's the point, is, is to have them there for communities and landscapes, to, for communities to continue to use them. Um, some cases that might mean a museum, but more often it's more ordinary uses, places to live or work or relax. And, and just as pickling can change the makeup of the vegetables while keeping some other characteristics of them, <laughs> sometimes preservation work involves adaptation and modification to meet new, new uses. I didn't realize that I'd really hit on a good metaphor there. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it was great, yeah. So turning to the Norwalk art space, um, it was Alexandra Corey who wanted to create a space where early career Norwalk artists could have free studios and exhibition space in return for teaching kids for free. Initially, she was going to build from scratch, but then she became sick and had to accelerate the process. Here's her husband Robin's account of finding the building that would eventually become the Norwalk art space. Uh, Somewhat randomly and luckily, uh, (laughs) this church came on the market uh, as was mentioned earlier, it had been a Persian rug store, uh, and nobody buys Persian rugs anymore, it turns out, and so they needed to sell. The roof was leaking, the place was in disrepair, uh, there were rugs piled up literally oh. about 10, 15 feet up into wow. the air because Jeez. nobody was buying them, and rain falling on them, so uh, it was for sale, and uh, it immediately caught Alexandra's eye. Uh, one, because of the bones of the building, which lend themselves quite well to mm-hmm. the use. The, the pickle analogy earlier was very apt for this building. <laughs> okay. um, and uh, so the, the bones were good, even though the building was in disrepair. 
Um, and also the location uh, was very interesting because it's right next to, as you mentioned earlier, David Matthews Park, which has three museums in it right. already. So it kind of evoked a you know museum mile, museum park kind mm-hmm. of idea. Uh, it's on a busy street with a bus stop so kids can get there. It's almost the perfect location, uh, frankly, better than the original location. And so uh, Alexandra jumped and uh, quickly bought the building. Uh, Rick Hogue, the architect, was initially opposed to it. Uh, <laughs> one, because he probably loved his original design. Right. <laughs> uh, two, uh, he found the basement danky, and then he saw the rain coming in and just thought it was dark and mm. uh, not as nice as his beautiful new design, which you know was <laughs> modern and sleek. Um, but he came around and... Uh, I think it's it's much better. Uh, no offense to Rick than the, the original <laughs> new building design. And here's Robin speaking about how a beautifully restored building such as the Norwalkart space can inspire everyone, and how the quality of the renovation has a lot to do with the success of the art space. You know, an interesting thing that your your question evoked for me was. How how important is the building and the preservation of the building to fulfilling the mission? And I think it's really important. I think you've got a really beautiful space that uh, is really inspiring and uh, people enjoy being in. And I think if you'd taken the same concept, as good as the concept is and as good as our staff is, if you'd taken the same concept and put it in some boring building... Uh, kind of out of the way, I don't know that this would have worked. Uh, so, you know, buildings and architecture and inspiring spaces are, are, I think, very important. And if you don't know it, imagine the top floor of a typical Georgian-style church, the main floor is sanctuary with huge windows which through which a light just pours that serves as a gallery and the downstairs social hall converted to a large classroom and four uh, artist studios. Now, Metro Art Studios was a different story. Rather than starting a new thing, Jane Davila was looking for a new home for an existing artist studio building. Here's Jane speaking of the process of searching as a community for the right building. It was a community building process where we had spent a lot of time, you know, kind of creating this tight knit community and we all supported each other and collaborated. And how, how many artists were there roughly? Um, in the end, about. A little over two dozen of us, about mm-hmm. two dozen of us, ended up moving yeah. over to the new building, and um, you know we knew that we wanted to to be together, and we wanted a space where we could create and continue to exist without um, without fear of being displaced, and that's hard because when you, um, I think that's the traditional. The, the trajectory of artists' communities in general is right. that, you know, you move into blighted areas, into older buildings, and um, you get displaced once it becomes, uh, once the, the owners of the building realize that it has potential <laughs> and that other people start to see it as cool instead of scary. Mm-hmm. And um, so we really wanted to find a space that gave us stability and longevity. Hmm. And you saw pretty many in your journey. So many buildings. Um, so I had started out by contacting a real estate broker and um, became very familiar with um, LoopNet, which is a commercial hmm. 
real estate um, platform, I guess, and um, would look at that literally every single day to see if there was anything that was coming up. And, and the group itself, we had decided together that we wanted to stay in Bridgeport. And there weren't a lot of buildings and, you know, we had really specific requirements. We wanted a larger space than we were currently occupying because we wanted to expand the community. Um, artist studio buildings have very specific needs, which include windows, right. <laughs> um, large windows or space for a large window windows, um, high ceilings. Um, it needed to have at least the potential for um, aesthetic beauty, um, even if it didn't have it in in the moment. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's one thing that artists are really good at is transforming or being able to visualize something in a raw state and have it be something that can be beautiful in the end. So we weren't scared by garbage and raccoon poop and broken windows and things like that. But we needed to know that the bones were there and Mm -hmm. that it would be a building that that would have the potential to be what we wanted it to be. And how did you know that the place that you found, the corset factory (laughs) was I knew the second I walked into that building, the very first time. um, It's big, right? It's big. It's It's 34,185 square feet. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And it's three stories high. Um, We had looked at a lot of buildings. There was a group of us um, that were going around and looking at the buildings and... um, we had I had contacted the city to see if there were any buildings that they owned, and there were a couple, but they all needed a million dollars of asbestos abatement, and yeah. nobody, nobody had an extra million dollars lying around. And um, I talked to other real estate agents, and the the building that we ended up at, um, the Crown Corset Factory, which is what it's known as, um, I walked in the back door. It was a giant old rusty roll-up door, and it was pitch dark because the bo- windows were boarded up. The windows had been boarded up for 40 years. Wow. And it had no inter- almost no interior walls. And just looking at the bones of that, looking mm-hmm. at the bones of the outside of it. Your it, imagination got to work. Yeah, I, right? I could picture it exactly the way it is now. Uh-huh. And exactly the dimensions and the proportions of what everything mm-hmm. needed to be in order for us to be there. And here's Jane on how they succeeded in converting this huge building with partners who own the building and some 14,000 hours of artist sweat equity. And who are your partners? Who are your key partners in this? <laughs> so the owners of the building um, are two gentlemen from New York, um, Michael Villani and Douglas Hartman. So they... they already owned it. They own the building. Yeah. They bought the building six years ago and they bought the building with the intention of it being artist studios. And that wasn't something that they knew how to do. Um, and we needed a space. (laughs) Perfect partnership. Yeah. It was very serendipitous (laughs) and Douglas himself is an artist. And so they have a studio in the building Uh and Douglas creates his art and, Uh um, that works out really well for everyone um, because he's now part of this great right. community of right. artists and has a really gorgeous, as the owners, they get to pick a beautiful <laughs> space. Um, so that worked out really, really well. And they are very um, familiar with restoration renovation because they own a historic brownstone in Harlem and restored it. So mm-hmm. we did a renovation, they did a restoration. So their passion is actually restoration. They collect antique furniture. Um, they're very um, involved in um, Hmm. preservation and historic all the things um, Any other partners you want to shout out give a shout out to people who really helped 
the artists themselves yes. actually yeah so a lot of sweat equity there in was this, so right? much sweat equity we we were doing a grant application for our nonprofit and we had to estimate the hours of the sweat equity hours that we'd put into the building and our total was over 14,000 hours oh my gosh um, <laughs> over the course of about a year or so um, and that was mostly so that we could keep costs down and open as quickly as possible right what about finance well, by far the biggest restoration project in the region is that of the 1848 Freeman Houses in the south end of Bridgeport, voted in 2018 by the National Trust as one of the 11 most endangered historic places in the country. Now, Maisa Tisdale has been working on this project for decades, and now with the recent recognition and funding by the National Trust, the National Park Service, the Mellon Foundation, and many more, it has its moment. Here's Mesa talking about why these houses are so important. So tell us briefly why anyone should care about these houses. Now they're 170 years old. And they look they're, it. They're <laughs> pretty bad shape. Um, why should anyone care about them? Well, because these houses are just amazing. They may look very old, and I've seen the words ramshackled used mm-hmm. about a hundred times this, this week. Huh. If I have a dollar for every time, <laughs> we'd be closer to our goal. But these these houses are the last witnesses of a chapter of history that was unknown or forgotten until the, the 1980s, when Charles Brilvich, huh. who was doing a, an architectural survey of the neighborhood, he wasn't yet the city historian, went to actually get his um, pants hemmed at the Cuban cleaners. You're kidding. <laughs> and, yeah, <laughs> and he noticed that the, the actual cleaners and tailors was cobbled on to the front of some very old houses, and, and he just wondered, well, how old are these houses? So what he found out is that these houses actually were the last remaining structures that were on the same foundation, the original foundation of an 1822 seafaring African-American community. And it was just mind-boggling. Now, no, no one knew before 1980 that this was... Well, if there yeah. was memory, it had been forgotten. <laughs> right. It had been right, forgotten right. some time ago. And it's interesting because one of the other scholars who researches this topic, Dr. Jamila Moore Pugh, she found lots of evidence and information about this, this um, settlement actually in different archives. So she found a letter written to Frederick Douglass by one of the um, correspondents for his newspaper, and he was writing from a hotel that was once next to the houses. Uh-huh. Um, it's not there anymore. And he was writing about this amazing community of, of free people of color and how um, it was just the up-and-coming place for, for blacks. Hmm. So the Freeman houses... Um there are another example of lost history being rediscovered and reassembled. So I think this theme of preservation and regeneration is very closely related to the theme of uncovering and reclaiming the lost stories of our past. You know, history is an intricately interwoven tapestry of the stories of all kinds of people coming from many places, making their lives, shaping the community and creating culture. But which stories get told? Which strands in the tapestry get the focus? Our program, Remaking History with Our Communities, in September 2021, 
showed how historical societies today are working to tell more inclusive stories, uncovering what has been lost, forgotten or covered over. One of the three speakers in that program was Ramin Ganeshram, Executive Director of the Westport Historical Society. First, she spoke to how that society, like most others, was founded and what its focus had been. It was a society that was created by, as many of these are, interested families in the area that counted themselves as quote-unquote original families, Mm -hmm. sort of original colonizing families, English families, right? Um, And it was a mutual interest society that met in people's living rooms uh, where they shared little artifacts and things that they had from their own families and formed a society. It kind of went dormant for a while and was really reinvigorated in the mid 20th century with, again, those same type of people coming together and sharing their um, information. Uh, From that point, Again, like most of these societies, um, completely volunteer run. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very certain sector of the local society. People who were very interested and not unusual. I know, I know Diane will, will agree yeah. with this. Very mm-hmm. preserving their own family stories and their own view of, of what history is, which I want to be clear is a normal human instinct to do, right? We mm-hmm. sense ourselves in the story. The result, though, was um, that an inclusive history that was based on fact was never was never the approach. Um, and so it was very clear that this had to be the approach going forward. And then Ramin spoke a little more about how that mission has evolved to what it is today. So our mission is to examine history inclusive of the stories of all people who were present and are present now. Um, to use fact-based, I use the word reporting, but the primary source research to do that. Um, And our goal is that to address what you said in the beginning, um, to provide factual information that tells a complete 360 degree view of history in a way that frankly, for many reasons, it cannot or is not being done in public education institutions. So we see our role as stepping up and filling that need. Now, Ramin had been researching African-American history for a decade or so and was in the midst of curating an exhibit about African-Americans in Westport for the Westport Historical Society when she landed the job as executive director in 2018. That exhibit remembered the history of African-Americans in Westport opened in 2019 to statewide and national acclaim, awards and recognition. Here, Ramin talks about why she did the show. And so the impetus for me was to say to the Historical Society before I was executive director, I'd like to tell the story of African-Americans in Westport because African-Americans were in Westport and it was really um, provoked by a statement I kept hearing in Westport from people, which was, it's not that Westport isn't diverse because there's an, an effort to make it not diverse. It's that there simply were not any black people in Westport. Ah. There were simply not ah. any indigenous <laughs> people in Westport, which as a researcher and writer, I knew was completely false. Ah. Um, the nature of colonization and the nature of commerce in the Atlantic trade, New yeah. England's role of this in it made it completely false. So I started to dig and that's mm. how I got the idea for the exhibit. I was fortunate to then get my job as executive director, which then brought allowed me to bring to bear all the resources of the museum, the staff, the budget, and so on to do the exhibit. And um, 
As you said, the exhibit was really well received. It started in the period of colonization, went up into the 20th century. It started with enslavement. Um, that was the first place where we also started to touch on something we now do whenever the history makes it, lends itself. And that is indigenous people. Indigenous people were enslaved in this town um, after, after the Great Swamp fight, the end of the um, so-called Pequot Wars. And um, uh, it, it was very, it was, it was largely well received. And I know later there's something you want to talk about regarding sort of the public um, response to it. Um, but the goal was to talk about all aspects of black, the black contribution to this town, not just enslavement, but also the people who were artists and educators and um, freedom fighters and civil libertarians and physicians, and to really understand that there was a holistic presence here as there has been throughout New England since the 17th century. Hmm. Uh, and that was the goal of that exhibit. So moving right along, we're a little short on time here. Um, lastly, in April 2022, we celebrated the annual Shining a Light lecture series at the Greenwich Historical Society, focused on restoring and preserving the lost voices in history. Deborah Mackey has been executive director of the Greenwich Historical Society for over 25 years. And here she talks about the evolution of that society and what emerged as they were renovating and reinterpreting their Bush Holly House. Well, not unlike many historical societies, you know, the efforts to save Bush Holly House in the 1950s was very much focused on its colonial history right. and the story of the wealthy yes. merchant family that owned uh -huh. it, uh -huh. furnishing the house with all these wonderful artifacts to represent that. Um, but in mm. 1998, we began the process. It was a four-year program to overhaul the interpretation of Bush Holly House. We refurnished eight um, historic rooms, and four of those were devoted to telling this colonial story mm. of the Bush family um, merchant family who uh, survived the American Revolution, and four of the rooms uh, were devoted to the Holly boarding house and the Cabar colony. But as what was different this time was that telling the story of the enslaved was a part of the challenge that we undertook. And though it wasn't evident at first that we would install a slave quarter, that point of view gradually emerged uh, from the curatorial team uh, and mm -hmm. architectural team because there was evidence of a back kitchen with a stair to an attic directly above it. And this huh. convinced us that this was the most likely work and sleeping space for the 15 enslaved so individuals. So literally, in literally you were uncovering this. These were like clues that you were... They are clues. And sometimes people say, well, you don't know that, you can't prove it. But, you know, I like to say you can't prove that, you know, David Bush, you know, necessarily lose run room over another. You have inventories, you have to go based on the, the scant evidence that you can find in primary source documents. And we feel they're very strongly indicating and, and the patterns in New England are, um, are, 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 are there elsewhere um, to represent that, you know, slaves in the Northeast generally slept in attics and cellars and, um, you know, above kitchens. And a house that now, how old is Bush Holly House? The house dates to uh, uh, 1730. Hmm. So, yes. So over the centuries, I mean, it's changed um, quite it, a bit. Yes, it has. Um, you know, I, I should say that as we've installed this slave quarter in Bush Holly House, we were one of only two um, historic sites in Connecticut that had slave quarters. The other was in Wethersfield. And this was several years before the publication of Complicity, uh, the work of um, Hartford Current journalist to shine a light on slavery in the North. Mm. So we were really very early in taking this 
this step to to create a, a physical space that was devoted to, you know, a slave quarter. Yeah, yeah it's very moving. I remember yes. seeing. And I should say to, to answer the other part of your question, you know, we've evolved since then um, to focus less on the room mm-hmm. and the uh, and 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 the generic story of the individual individuals who were enslaved there to uh, giving the enslaved people the same attention and research that were devoted early on to understanding the David and Sarah Bush family. Mm. I think that's what's really changed. So unfortunately, we don't have time to hear Deborah speaking about the Shining a Light series, but we invite you to go to SoundCloud and look at the April 2022 um, uh, recording uh, to hear more about this uh, terrific series that continues shining a light on uh, the lost voices in local history. Um, Erica, we have just about a minute left. I just wondered if you had any comments about what you've been hearing and uh, looking forward to your tenure at the Cultural Alliance. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for curating such a, a fantastic and interesting um, episode What I think I'm walking away from this conversation with is the importance of identifying history and preserving that history Mm. and really using that as a gateway to retell history while making history. Um, All of these are just fantastic examples of people who are retelling um, in their own creative way. And I also think reshaping community voice, you you kind of touched on the curiosity of, you know, who gets to decide. And I think we all do. Uh, We (laughs) just have to amplify the voices of all people. And I think artists do that fantastic work um, and dedicated work in our community so beautifully. So as I enter this role as executive (laughs) director, I'm so excited just to connect with more artists and continue to shape shift the the voices and the space of art here in Fairfield County. Yes. Well, there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of uh, potential here, I think. And we're all looking very much forward to your leadership in the next in the next few years. Thank you. So this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County, and this was the September 2023 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. On the eve of my departure from the Cultural Alliance, this show was dedicated to a few of my most memorable moments from the 75 programs I've hosted since December 2017. With me in the studio today was Erica Wesley, our new executive director as of September 18th. Thanks also to Rod Richardson, our fearless engineer, for producing the program. You can hear the show again on WPKN Podcasts on SoundCloud. Tune in Monday, October 9th at noon for the next edition of Spotlight on Art. Support for WPKN comes from the SHU Community Theatre presenting the Simon and Garfunkel Songbook on Saturday, September the 23rd at 8pm, featuring Aztec Two-Step 2.0, with narration by Tony Trigado. This music and multimedia event chronicles the career of Simon and Garfunkel. More information and tickets available at shucommunitytheatre.org. Isn't it really annoying when you couldn't catch something they mentioned on the radio? Yes, it's really annoying, but don't despair. 
On WPKN, you can catch it back again on our archives because for two weeks it'll still be there and you can hear it again. Just go to WPKN.org, select Program Archives, find the date and name of the program you've been listening to, and then move the bar to the approximate time you first heard the part you missed. Get into the archives habit for anything you didn't catch the first time on WPKN. Hi, I'm Francesca Rhiannon, host of Writer's Voice. Tune in Mondays at 10 p.m. for in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, talking about matters both timely and timeless. Politics, history, health, nature, how-to, science, fiction, memoir, and more. That's Monday nights at 10 p.m. right here on WPKN. Hazel Kahn, inviting you to tune into Tidings on Wednesday to hear Robert Massoud, Palestinian founder of Zatun, speaking to us from Toronto about the 20 years he has spent telling the story of Palestine through its olive oil without being silenced by politicians and media. Wednesday, 6.30 a.m. and 8 p.m. Please join us if you can. Thank you. What's Parking Day? It's a global event in cities to activate urban public places. This year, downtown Bridgeport participates on Friday, September 15th from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Colorful Bridgeport and nonprofit partners like WPKN, the Barnum Museum, Mosaic Coalition, and the Library have paired up with restaurants to transform metered parking spaces into parklets. Enjoy happy hour with select music, poetry, comedy, games, and body painting, as well as special food and drink options. Here's a few Bridgeport Parking Day restaurants. Trattoria Al Vucello, 29 Markle, El Poblito, Bank Street Bar, Poe's Kitchen, and Gather Tap and Tavern. More info and updates at Colorful Bridgeport on Instagram and Facebook. I'm Ralph Baskin, a WPKN volunteer supporting sustaining members in our member card program. I've spoken to many of you during fund drives. Sustaining membership is one of the best ways you can support WPKN, helping us budget and plan better to provide more of what you expect from the best radio station in the world. There's a benefit of sustaining membership that gives something back to you. The WPKN member card. You get two-for-one dining offers and other savings opportunities across our area. There are travel benefits for car rentals, hotels, and theme parks, too. If you live outside our area, you can also find offers where you live. Benefits are automatic for a donation of $15 or more per month and are in addition to any gift or premium you already received. Member cards renew every year you remain a sustaining member. Questions or issues with your sustaining membership? Email me at membercard at wpkn.org. If you're already a sustaining member, thank you. If not, please consider it by going to WPKN.org and clicking the red Donate button. 
The Connecticut Audubon Society has been conserving our state's birds and their habitats through land management, advocacy, and education since 1898. Visit us at our centers in Fairfield, Milford, Pomfret, Old Lyme, and Sherman. We also maintain 20 sanctuaries across the state, open dawn to dusk year-round. Our eco-travel program is based in Essex, and our science and nature education program reaches thousands of school children a year. More information at ctaudubon.org. Hello there, this is Kevin Gallagher, host of Digging in the Dirt, and you're tuned to WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut at 89.5 FM and streaming live at WPKN.org. <laughs> 